0: Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Postmodernism, in its sort of rejection of truth overall, has left this one area of truth remaining, and that's the lens of power
1: social justice is not compatible with a biblical commitment. CRT, critical race theory, is not compatible with a biblical commitment at all, and neither is liberation theology.
0: Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus, and the strength of our faith completely depends on the strength of the object
1: of our faith. When you separate the work of the Holy Spirit and the receiving of the Holy Spirit from the waters of baptism, then you open yourself up to the False teaching of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement that you can be a Christian but not have the Holy Spirit. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Those two words, for us, embody our Lutheran understanding of the blessed exchange that Christ was born and died for us, taking our place.
2: New parents' love, listening to issues, etc. In the middle of the night, Well, we've heard about media bias for decades now. And then the liberal media. What about the woke media, woke journalism? How did a profession that was once blue-collar working class, a trade in essence, journalism, become an elite prestige profession? And with that change, does it have something to do with the fact that well, the media and journalism, by and large, has bought into the narrative of anti-racism. It's the new way that they view the world. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking about woke journalism with Batya Ungar-Sargon of Newsweek. For the first hour of the program, then in hour two, physics and multiverse theories. Dr. Paul Edmund he helps run the Canon supercomputer at Harvard University. We'll be discussing those theories with him and their compatibility with a Christian worldview. Joining us to discuss woke journalism, Batya ungar Sargon. She's deputy opinion editor for Newsweek and author of the new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batya, welcome to Issues Etc.
3: Thank you so much for having me, it's a real honor. I'd
2: like your reaction to an actuality we have from Bill Keller, the former executive editor for the New York Times from 2003 to 2011, on how the New York Times at that time was covering certain issues. We're liberal in the sense that the liberal arts schools are liberal. Uh, we're an urban newspaper, we write about evolution as a fact, we don't give equal time to creationism. Uh, you know, I mean, we are liberal in the sense that that we are open-minded, uh, sort of tolerant, uh, urban. Um, you know, our weddings page includes and did even before New York had a gay marriage law included gay unions. Uh, so we're liberal in that sense of the word, I guess. You
1: know. So I'll ask you directly, and you can answer directly: Does the New York Times have bias in favor of Democrats or liberals?
2: Uh, you know, aside from the the liberal values, sort of social values thing that I talked about, no, I don't think it does. Bhatia, yeah, what's your reaction to Bill Keller there? And in addition, how have things changed in the last decade?
3: So I think it's so interesting what you heard in his answer. There was a slippage between the use of the word liberal to mean people from all sides and then the use of the word liberal to mean people who are not religious and people who support gay marriage. Right. So it's so interesting how in his mind, he started out by saying we're liberal in the sense that, you know, we believe in a diversity of viewpoints and then that diversity of viewpoints ended up being, you know, people who are secular people who support gay marriage, people who share our viewpoint, right? And I would say that that slippage has gotten even more extreme. So at this point, 91% of the New York Times' readers are Democrats, meaning liberals in the second sense, right? They share that same, like he said, urban, um, highly educated, increasingly affluent liberal point of view. But today, they really have shocked the other definition of liberal that he uses there the belief that everybody deserves a spot everybody deserves a hearing that we should be hearing from people across the political spectrum. Now in the New York Times, you'll really only find people who uh, hold a very specific point of view, which is not just liberal. Now, it's what is increasingly referred to as woke, meaning it's obsessed with race and gender in a very, very radical academic far left leaning way, and you really will not find the viewpoints of believers of creationists of republicans of even liberals who don't hew to the woke party line in the New York Times anymore
2: so about here, you say that journalists joining the American elite class and the mainstreaming of radical ideas about race in the newsroom are really just two sides of the same coin. What do you mean by that?
3: Yeah, I think that a lot of the times when we talk about race on the left, we're actually talking about class. And what I mean by that is we have erased the great and unforgivable economic inequality in America and this enormous class divide separating the upwardly mobile college educated from the downwardly mobile working class. And instead of talking about that, which is a moral emergency and which divides this nation, uh, we talk about race and we talk about race through the lens of what I would really call a moral panic at a time when Americans have never been less racist, at a time when Americans have never been more united about the importance of combating the remaining areas of state-sponsored racism including you know things like police brutality and mass incarceration and public schools that are segregated by race at a time when there is really bipartisan support for addressing these issues the liberal media and the left instead of sort of rejoicing that they now have partners to take on these issues they moved the goalpost about what counts as racism so that they could smear all conservatives as racists and i find that to be pretty unforgivable and and the question is why why would they do that why would our mainstream news media instead of accurately reflecting where the nation is at that for the first time in our history we are united around the ideals that this great nation was bounded on, why would they instead talk about racism every single day, talk about white supremacy every single day, increase this feeling of hysteria around a racism that, thank God, is finally receding from the public square. Why would they do that? And I argue in my book that this smearing of all conservatives as racist is part of a sneering campaign against the working class and is a way of really erasing class issues that journalists have really benefited from from this great inequality
2: what is the anti-racism narrative that is as you say accepted as fact by many journalists
3: so i think the best way to convey it is with a yale study from 2018 which was also the beginning of my uh, my awokening awakening from the nonsense that is wokeness because i was pretty woke until then So the Yale study found that there is a big difference in how white liberals and white conservatives talk to black and Latino Americans. Now, bear in mind that liberals love to call conservatives racist, right? But the Yale study found something very interesting. They found that when white liberals talk to blacks and Latinos, they dumb down their speech. They use smaller words than when they're talking to other whites, and white conservatives don't do this. So I remember reading this study and thinking, but we call them the racists? Like, it really didn't compute to me. Um, It's such an indictment, but so, so what is it that makes somebody dumb down their speech when they see somebody with darker skin than them? It's from this position of believing that people who are white, have infinite resources, infinite privilege, and infinite power, and people who are people of color have no power and no agency and no resources, and that it is your job as a good liberal to help them. That helping, that patronizing attempt to alleviate the suffering of somebody based purely on a stereotype you are imposing on them, right? It's quite racist, but it is at the beating heart of wokeness. The view that we've replaced a worldview based on what is right versus what is wrong with a viewpoint based on who has power and who doesn't. And then we've taken race, a racial divide, and superimposed that onto that question of power. So all white people have all the power and all people of color have none of the power. And it's your job as a good liberal to help them, you know. Now, it's very interesting because this is not how people of color see themselves. Anybody with relationships in the black community and the Latino community knows immediately that this is, you know, a completely insulting point of view that does not reflect how people of color see themselves. And the word woke, actually, it started as black slang to refer to important things like things I talked about before, mass incarceration state-sponsored racism, but sociologists today use it to refer to something that happened in 2015 that they call the Great Awakening, which refers to the moment that white liberals became more extreme in their views on race than Black and Latino Americans. And that's the phenomena that I critique in my book, when white liberals, in their attempts to see themselves as on the right side of history, as better than conservatives, as better than even liberals who are not quite as extreme as have, have taken on these very radical academic views based on a power differential that are obsessive about race and alienating to the working class of all races, essentially. So why
2: do corporate interests that once acted, as you say, as a check on journalism's progressive impulses, why do they no longer do that?
3: That's such a great question. So it used to be that across America you know, the vast majority of news outlets were local news outlets. And so you would have a newspaper in a town, and that town would have, you know, 40% of the residents would be Democrats and 60% would be Republicans or vice versa. And essentially what the publisher of any publication could choose was either to lean left or right and get half of the, the residents as customers, or they could report the news straight and get the whole town as their customers, right? And this was very much the model, even for an outlet like the New York Times that was catering to the elites because at the time the elites They, you know, to them, what it meant to be an elite was to be moderate in view, to want to hear from the other side, to want to have civil debate. That was sort of the view that you were you would pick up throughout the second half of the 20th century, even at university, right? That you, that's what made you a good American, hearing from all sides, you know, and being involved in this liberal discourse and debate, right? And all that changed really with digital media because digital media, the measurement for success when you're engaged in digital media and trying to get your stories read online is not mass circulation, and it's not really ads either. It's engagement. It's how many people shared your story, how many people tweeted your story, how many people commented on it on Facebook. That measure is called engagement, and engagement is something you can monetize because you can sell that. You can sell the data that you collect from your reader while they're engaged on your site to other companies. That's really how you make your money now. And the sad truth is, is that the most engaged readers are always the most extreme. And that's on both sides. And so what you're seeing is media outlets catering to the most extreme readers because those are the ones who are essentially paying their bills today. And so it actually pays to alienate not just the other side, but even people who are sort of in the center or moderates who are on your own side. That's sort of the business model today. And so journalists who are increasingly highly educated increasingly affluent. They brought these very radical views about race and gender out of the university with them into their newsrooms. And instead of having a check on them from the corporations they work for, they were told to keep going, keep going, because that's how you increase readership.
2: Bhatia Ungar-Sargon is our guest. She's deputy opinion editor for Newsweek and author of the new book, Bad News. How woke media is undermining democracy. On the other side, how does this wokeness perpetuate the economic interests of affluent white liberals?
1: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we move farther along in St. Luke with Jesus Heals the Demoniac, Healing and Preaching calling of four disciples, Jesus cleanses a leper, and which is easier to say. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or on
2: your favorite podcast provider.
0: your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal PrincipalJCrowsey.com. J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E at M-E-L-H-S dot org. J Krause at M-E-L-H-S dot org.
1: Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. (laughs) memoriapress.com
2: Welcome back to Issues, et cetera. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about woke journalism with Batia Ongar Sargon, Deputy Opinion Editor for Newsweek and author of the new book, Bad News: How Woke Media is undermining democracy. Batia, how does this wokeness perpetuate the economic interests of affluent white liberals?
3: I'll give you an example: immigration. So it used to be that the Democrats were on the side of closing the border and restricting immigration. Because they were on the side of the working class. And who is going to be competing with, you know, when you bring in mass immigration, who are those people competing with? It's the working class, right? You know, a journalist who has a graduate degree whose livelihood stems from being able to speak English is not going to be threatened by somebody crossing the border who is a low-skilled worker. The job that that immigrant threatens is a working class person's job. And the Democrats used to see themselves as being on the side of the working class, and so they were on the side of restricting immigration. And the Republicans, meanwhile, who were the side of the rich, they were on the side of open borders, right? Let's bring in as many people to work, low-wage workers, you know, it'll be great for this trickle-down. I'm sorry, I, I don't believe in trickle-down economics. I think Trump actually had it right with the America First stuff. So that, that's how things were, you know, for much of the 20th century. Even leading up to 2015, Bernie Sanders was a, an immigration restrictionist. He was saying open borders. He called it a Koch brothers proposal. He said they would love nothing more than to have an open border, have people streaming across to work for two, three dollars an hour. And then he said, I don't believe in that. I believe in American workers. What happened is, is you've seen a total reversal of that, right? Now it's the Republican Party, embodied by Donald Trump, who believe in restricting the border, controlling immigration, protecting, you know, American workers, and it's the liberals who are on the side of open borders, you know, during the 2020 election, when during a primary debate for the presidential election, when uh, a question was asked to all of the people running for the Democratic nomination, whether they would vote to, Decriminalize illegal border crossing. And every single one of them, except for Joe Biden, said yes, including Bernie Sanders. So he did a 180 on that. So, why did that happen? You know, you have people now like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez tweeting things like the very idea of American citizenship is built out of racism. Now, if you oppose open borders, if you believe in protecting American workers and restricting immigration, that's now considered racist. So why is that? Why did that flip-flop happen? And I think you have to ask yourself, well, who benefits from mass immigration and who pays the price for it? Half of all immigrants to the United States who are undocumented are domestic servants. They work in people's households. Who is employing these people? Well, it's liberals, right? It's highly educated liberals living on the coast where both parents work. Let's say both parents have very demanding jobs and somebody has to make dinner and somebody has to clean the house and raise the kids, right? Or it's affluent liberals Liberals living in California who need domestic labor outside for landscaping, right? GDP overall in the aggregate has gone up due to the mass immigration of the last 30 years. But you have to ask for who? Who did it go up for? It went up for the elites and who paid the price? The American working class and especially black Americans. The wages of black Americans have been tied to a 40% decrease over the last 30 years due to mass immigration, which is why when you poll the people in the Democratic coalition, black Americans are the least likely to support higher levels of immigration because it's come at their expense. And what you're really seeing here is how wokeness, right? The redefinition of the word racism, the mission creep of what counts as racist to cover anything to do with the border, right? How that has actually penalized black Americans. It has actually come at the expense of the people who most need us to advocate on their behalf against racism while literally lining the pockets and enriching the highly educated liberal elites who make use of the labor of undocumented immigrants. So that's just one example of how affluent liberals are using wokeness, using an expanded definition of what counts as racism to benefit economically in a very literal way. Of course, there are many other examples, but that's just the first one.
2: Who were Benjamin Day and and Joseph Pulitzer, and how did they understand the job of the journalist?
3: So my book begins with a history of American journalism. And, you know, people don't realize this, but American journalism really began as a populist revolt against the elites. It began as a working class revolution. Benjamin Day was a printer who his father pulled him out of school when he was 14 years old to go work and help support the poor family. And he came to New York City as a young man in 1833. And he looked around him and he had no trouble getting work as a printer. But all of the newspapers that existed at the time were really for the elites. And he lived in a poor neighborhood. And what he knew from that was that a lot of poor people could read. In fact, America was the first country in the world where it was very normal for lower class people to be able to read. But they didn't have a newspaper. And he realized that if he created a newspaper for them and charged just a penny for it, he could get a lot of readers, as long as the stuff in the paper was interesting, as long as it was about the working class and for the working class, and that's what he did. And he became absolutely astonishingly rich by charging people one penny for a newspaper that was about them, that was relevant to their lives. And Joseph Pulitzer was really the father of American journalism, really picked this up and created uh, you know, he took it to the next level. He charged two pennies, it was 30 years later. And he was really famous for saying that nothing is worth writing that is not sure to be read by the masses he believed that the point of journalism was to wage a crusade on behalf of the working class and we've really really lost that in american journalism today american journalism today you know on the right Really caters to the economic elites, conservative economic elites, to the rich, and on the left, it, it caters to the cultural elites, to the top ten percent of highly educated, affluent liberals, and there's really nobody speaking on behalf of or to the working class, trying to build up worker power and create solidarity and and really show the working class that they have the right to jobs that give them dignity and they have the right to the kind of countervailing force that would really give them an equal say in the corporations that they work for.
2: And what about Joseph Pulitzer, what did he bring to the table when it comes to the formation of journalism?
3: So in Benjamin Day's day, the penny presses, they didn't really believe that it was extremely important to be accurate. So they sometimes would flub the line between fiction and fact. They would, as you know, some of the major characters in their stories were themselves, were the the publishers themselves who would get into hijinks with other publishers. They were tabloids essentially. But they were tabloids that would, you know, print, you know, the demands of the unions in full, right? So they were this lovely combination of sort of carnival and crusade. Joseph Pulitzer really believed in accuracy and the truth, and of course there was a you know this moment during the Spanish War where he and Hearst got into this fight, and due to that he really let the uh, standards fall. But he really regretted that afterwards, and he really introduced into the penny press the idea that. The facts, the facts, the facts that accuracy was really important, but also that speaking to people where they're at is really important. He hated big words. He hated any kind of, you know, the whiff of the learned. He hated seeing anything that sounded like it came out of a college campus, you know, or that anybody was saw themselves as being above the people that they were writing to. He believed that, you know, in asking somebody who only has two pennies for one of those pennies, you were conferring a dignity upon them. And you were saying to them, I see you not as someone an object of pity, but as a customer and a consumer, and I'm going to work my butt off to make sure I have something that's worth that penny. So you're going to come back tomorrow and give me another one of your, you know, another one of your pennies. He really believed in giving dignity to the people at the bottom, which as a religious person, I really, really relate to that, you know, the idea that the least among us has the most to teach us. It just seems like such an important concept that has completely disappeared from the media today.
2: Batya Ungar Sargon is our guest. We're talking about woke journalism. When we return, the New York Times, she says, was born out of what she calls a concern for respectability. We'll find out what that means next. Are you thankful for the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc.? Please consider making a special Thanksgiving gift. You can make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org, or you can also contribute by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. For a year-end contribution of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Does this
1: sound like your church budget process
2: at the end of the year? You get last year's
1: budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the Word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the Word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting. LCMS.org stewardship.
2: The Lord has gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. These gifts can be received every week at both Grace Lutheran Church and Trinity Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas. Join us for divine services at Grace on Sundays at 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m., as well as every Wednesday at 11 a.m., or at Trinity every Sunday at 11 a.m. Grace is located at 3310 East Pawnee and Trinity at 611 South Erie. Gather with us around our Lord and His giving His gifts to us. See you soon. Lutheran
1: Talk the cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us.
0: Lutheran music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Listen to what you want, when you want. You're listening
2: to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor Beautiful Savior Lutheran, Milton, Washington. Concordia Lutheran, Sykeston, Missouri. Grace Lutheran, Wichita, Kansas. Hope Lutheran, Spokane Valley, Washington. Mount Olive Lutheran, Duluth, Minnesota. Our Savior Lutheran, Milford, Illinois. Redeemer Lutheran, Scottsdale, Arizona. St. John Lutheran, Ray, Michigan St. Paul Lutheran, Parkersburg, West Virginia Trinity Lutheran, Valonia, Indiana and Redeemer Lutheran, East Englewood, Florida Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about woke journalism with Batia Unger Sargon. She's deputy opinion editor for Newsweek. She's authored the new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batya, tell us how the New York Times was born out of what you call a, a concern for respectability.
3: So the New York Times started as a counter revolution to all this stuff I'm talking about, you know, the penny presses. So the penny presses were making so much money, but they really had a lock on the poor and the working classes. And the New York Times realized that if they couldn't compete for numbers, they could do something else, which was compete for advertisement by convincing advertisers that their readership was a higher class. And what I mean by that is think about an ad for, let's say a $10,000 watch, right? So if an advertiser is going to put that ad in the penny press, where maybe, I don't know, 10% of the readers are ever going to even be able to dream of a $10,000 watch, right, it'll be worth X amount of dollars because so many of the readers, it's wasted eyeballs, right? But if you can have a publication where you say to the advertiser for that watch, look, 90% of my readership is affluent. They're all in the market for a $10,000 watch, right? That ad suddenly becomes worth a lot more, right? Because you're not wasting any of those dollars. I mean, a much smaller percentage of those dollars are being wasted on someone who is not in the market for this product, right? New York Times realized that. And so what they decided was what they're going to do is create a kind of journalism that signals to readers that it is for the elites for the respectable for the people who are aspirationally elite right the the social climbing right people who are middle class who want to be upper middle class or people who are upper middle class who want to be elites right who want to be part of the top 10 percent the top one percent It was going to cater to those respectability politics that make people think that, you know, we're rising economically and, you know, one day we too are going to be in the market for that expensive watch. And that way they were able to charge a lot more for ads. That was sort of in, you know, in the beginning. And it's so funny because when you look at The New York Times now compared to what it was when it started, it was a revolt against the sensationalism of the penny presses, right? It was the respectability, the buttoned up, right? It was very staid in its language. The penny presses were always very flamboyant in their language. And the Times was all about being respectable, all about being, you know, bourgeois middle class, like, you know, buttoned up. And today, if you look at the New York Times, it's just sensationalism for the rich, right? It's just all of this, you know, one of these the great examples is a sociologist trawled the archives of the New York Times in 2017. And he found that Donald Trump's name appeared 97,000 times in the New York Times. And I mean, that's just an insane amount. And when you look at, okay, so you're saying maybe, maybe a president, you talk about him a lot because he's the president, but President Obama's name only appeared 37,000 times in his second year in office. Why is the New York Times talking about Donald Trump? You know, 97,000 times is the equivalent of once every 250 words right? It's, it's it's insane. What what could possibly justify that, right? It's not a journalistic thing that, that justifies that. It's the fact that that is what makes its highly educated, affluent, liberal, white readership get very, very engaged, right? We said earlier that engagement is the measure of success, and that is what makes them see red and keep clicking and keep clicking and keep clicking is the name Donald Trump, right?
2: So tell us in a little more detail about the time when Journalism was a blue collar working class trade.
3: Yeah, so for for much of the twentieth century, journalism was considered, you know, a lower class endeavor. It was not something that you know, somebody who was part of the elites would ever consider doing. So, you know, John F. Kennedy, for example, when he was at Harvard, he worked on the Harvard Crimson, which was the Harvard newspaper, but he would never have dreamed of going into journalism because it was not a high-status job. It was a blue-collar trade, and and most of journalists throughout the 20th century just didn't have a college degree. So in 1937, a survey of the elites of the journalism industry, the, the Washington cohort, the survey found that Uh, less than half of them had a college degree, and a lot of them hadn't even gone to high school. And you fast forward to today, and in 2015, a survey found that 92% of all journalists have a college degree, a number that's certainly higher by now. And most of them have a graduate degree as well, which is ironic because you actually can't teach journalism. These are vanity degrees um, where they don't actually learn how to do the job. So there's been a total status revolution over the course of the 20th century.
2: What changed journalists from outsiders to insiders?
3: So uh, it was a number of things um, from within, you know, pressures from within the industry, from outside the industry. So one of the big things that really set off this status revolution was the Watergate scandal. And as importantly, it's, uh, you know, retelling in the movie, All the President's Men, where it really cast journalism as this glamorous endeavor, where you get to be played in the movie version by, you know, sexy actors, and you bring down this very unpopular president you know, suddenly it it had glamour associated with it. And that started to bring in a higher class of journalists who started to ask for more money, who started to bring in even a higher class of journalists, et cetera, et cetera. And people started to increasingly have a college degree. And then once people increasingly had a college degree, you didn't just need a college degree, you needed a fancy college degree. And now you look at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, NPR, and they only take their interns from the top 1% of universities. All of this happening at the same time that local journalism is just absolutely collapsing as an industry, right? And so there's fewer, fewer jobs, which means that people can afford to be pickier. And what they chose to do with their ability to be pickier is not to go out into the heartland or to get journalists of color or to get diversity, but to just get the you know, the fanciest universities, uh, you know, the people from those areas, which are increasingly uniform. So you have this total monoculture, all of these liberal publications that used to have their own flavor and their own tone, they all now sound exactly the same. They're all completely irreplaceable i mean replaceable
2: you say that uh, the people who ran the newsroom changed how they saw their audience and their readers how so
3: so when journalists were working class, they were really writing for themselves, for each other, for the people in their neighborhood. You would have journalists living next door to factory workers and electricians, and that's who they were answerable to, you know? They would go to church at the end of the week and they had to face these people, right? Which meant that they that's who they were answerable to. It was considered a, a low status job, and so when they would go to interview famous people, they would often get treated badly. And, you know, they didn't see themselves as being on the side of power. They saw themselves as being outside of power, speaking on behalf of others who are outside of power like themselves. Today, journalists go to the same schools as fancy politicians. They send their children to the same fancy schools as politicians. They live in the same neighborhoods as CEOs and tech people and millionaires and corporate lawyers. You know, that that's who their community is now is other highly, highly educated, affluent elites. So it used to be a journalist would live next door to an electrician and make maybe a little bit more than them. And now they live next door to you know an accountant and a corporate lawyer and they make a little bit less than them. And so it's just they literally are inside now inside that top 10% making more than most Americans. They're less religious than Americans overall. They're more coastal. They're much, much more liberal. They're much more woke. And it's really, really, you can really see this in the coverage.
2: How then does journalism maintain at least the facade or maybe the self-delusion of speaking truth to power?
3: I mean, I guess when you're really insulated, you can believe whatever you want about yourself, right? I don't think anybody else believes that about journalists anymore. <laughs> do you believe that about journalists?
2: Uh, no, not anymore, unfortunately.
3: Yeah.
2: How do you explain the conservative media's appeal to the working class now?
3: So, a conservative media, from my point of view, and I, I honestly think, you know... President Trump would agree with me on this. I don't. I don't see them as representing the economic interests of the working class at all. There's a lot of. It's not pro corporate in its um, rhetoric, but there's very little talk about how do we empower workers who are downwardly mobile and committing deaths of despair and and have very little power in the American economy today. But. What they don't do is sneer at the working class while abandoning them economically, which is what the left has done for the last 30, 40 years. They respect their values. So, you know, an outlet like Fox News can unite rich and working class conservatives by simply not insulting believers, right, by simply not insulting people who believe in school choice by just not sneering at people who believe that uh, it's important to be religious, it's important to, to have community. So I think that in that sense, they really have managed to unite a very economically diverse viewership. By respecting their values. And I think that that is very important. I really respect that they do that I I wish that there was more of the kind of representation of the kind of pro worker, you know, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, President Trump economic agenda, that economic populism that I think is, you know, really going to save us and really the path forward. But absent that. Like just not sneering at people, just not sneering at people who believe that schools should be open and that we should have the right to decide whether or not we get vaccinated. I think that's very important as well.
2: How do the internet and social media reinforce journalism's focus on elite interests?
3: You know, people like to act like Twitter is this great democratizing force because people can speak back at the people in power when the truth is that the people who are on Twitter are much more affluent, much more coastal, much younger than the population at large. It tends to be activists and politicians and journalists. And the people who have the big followings, these are people who are you know, already part of the elites. And so it's really amplified the power of people who already have a lot of power Already have a big platform, and so it's really narrowed the scope of the discourse rather than expanding it.
2: We'll talk about journalists building a social media brand on the other side of the break as we talk about woke journalism with Bhatia Ungar Sargon of Newsweek. 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible is the issues etc a book of the month for November. This new resource will help you navigate God's word with clarity and confidence. 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number 1-800-325-3040 or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The issues etc a book of the month 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible.
1: Do you need a rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Someplace where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org.
0: We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. Have you thought about eternal life? When does it begin? What is eternal life? Well, your eternal life does not begin when your body, earthly body, fails and is laid into the grave. It begins, in fact, in the waters of holy baptism, where you were tied to the death of Christ and in him you were raised. To learn more about this topic of eternal life, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit FLSPlano.org, FLSPlano.org.
2: Welcome back to Issues Etc., I'm Todd Wilkin. We are talking about woke journalism with Bhatia ungar Shargan. Author of the new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Here's a recent review of Ad Cruesome. Mary writes, I have bought several personalized gifts, ornaments, and artwork. My friends always enjoy the gifts I give them from Ad Cruesome. The quality is excellent, and they take great care in shipping. Discover what Mary is talking about at AdCruesome.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Bhatia, talk about the trend of national journalists building their own social media brand, in particular on platforms like Twitter.
3: Well, the, here's the thing about a brand. <laughs> a brand means consistency. That's literally what a brand is, right? It means every day when I go to this Instagram page, I'm going to see you know, something consistent, right? I'm going to see this brand this brand, right? Giving me a message that reminds me of what they said yesterday and the day before and the day before. That's how you build up a brand. For journalists, this is just anathema to the job, because our job is to approach every topic and say, what is the truth here, right? Now, if you wrote an article on something, you know, and then a year later, it turns out you were wrong, you can't say I was wrong, because then you're betraying the brand, right? And so it's put journalists into this, you know, branding exercise where they literally can't do their jobs, which is to figure out every single day what the truth is, because they can't contravene what they said yesterday or the day before. So that's just absolutely, it's so dangerous and it's so appalling, but it's also by design. So an outlet like the New York Times, for example, in 2014, they had a really bad year. And so the guy who was coming in as the new publisher, A.G. Salzberger, was tasked with finding out why and how to maximize their reach digitally. And one of the things he said was, I want my journalists to be out there becoming social media stars. That was what he wanted. And that is what happened. And what they've done with that Power now is actually they will whip up outrage mobs on Twitter against their own colleagues and then force A.G. Salzberger to fire those people when they don't like what they said, when they're not woke enough. And so he basically empowered his employees to go out there and take over the reins of the publication in a way that is, is really, really ugly. What
2: did the Trump presidency, you mentioned digital journalism, especially The New York Times, What did he do for the digital journalism business model?
3: I would say he really amplified a lot of the pressures that were already there. So, like I said, the Great Awakening happened in 2015, which was before Trump. The journalism that led to the Great Awakening began in 2011, 2012, which is when media outlets started to absolutely obsess over race. So, again, sociologists trawling the Internet have found that 2011-2012 is when the New York Times and NPR and the Washington Post and the Atlantic and Vox and all these outlets started to use words like white supremacy, oppression, marginalization, white privilege, slavery, all these words started to just skyrocket in their usage. So all that really preceded Trump and I argue is a reflection of really a class divide rather than anything that has to do with race. And I think to the extent that Trump was really seen by many working class people, including a lot of working class people of color, as a tribune essentially against liberal elites and their contempt, he really skyrocketed a lot of these pressures already where these liberal journalists just could not believe that somebody that they hated Could have power. And so they got locked into this very adversarial relationship with Trump that was awesome for news outlets, which made a lot of money off of it. Although, of course, now we're seeing sort of a slump.
2: So how did the Trump effect further narrow that target audience of progressive news organizations?
3: Well, you don't get ninety-one percent of your readership being Democrats by accident, right? That takes a lot of work, and uh, I think that they just were not up to the task of reporting on him. They every single day we were told that he's the most dangerous, the most this, the most that. The contempt oozed out of every paragraph. You just, if you were even Trump ambivalent, you could not read the New York Times and not sense just the absolute contempt they had for him. You know, the, really, the degradation of the office went both ways. I don't think he was very dignified as a president. I have a lot of criticism of him but just the absolute obsession not from a journalistic point of view but really as part of that business model combined with just the contempt that the elites have for people who don't have fancy college educations for average Americans you know nobody's sitting down and saying wow we really got this wrong our fellow Americans are trying to tell us something by electing this very undignified person to represent them like what is it they're trying to tell us maybe we messed up nobody did that i mean they did it for one second and then really doubled down and I've really come to see it as part of a class story um, rather than a race one, because, you know, what else could possibly explain it?
2: So did the Trump effect solidify journalism's anti-racist, which you really, I think you're right in identifying it as a a class rather than race narrative?
3: I think it did. You know, one of the hallmarks of anti-racism and the woke worldview is it's very counterintuitive, okay? So for example, for a long time sadly, many Americans, including many conservatives, didn't believe that we should have a colorblind society, right? We there was just we struggled to get there, it took a long time. Okay, we're now there, right? Like now there really is consensus that race should not be taken into account. It's certainly hating somebody because of their race is evil and ungodly and that this is not is beneath us and, you know, no good person is allowed to do that. And, you know, we're finally there, right? Like, you know, most Americans now truly want to believe in a society where nobody's discriminated against because of their race. So what does the left say? Well, now their new line is it's racist to say that you want to live in a colorblind society right? That's a line now in the anti-racist community because it erases the ways in which we're still struggling to achieve it. That view that it's racist to want the thing that we we all know is the right thing and that it took us a long time to get there and we're finally there, that counterintuitive move, that's the hallmark of a university education, right? It's like now that everybody finally believes something agrees with something, it's too normy, right? It's too you can't, you know, you have to think the opposite of that because god forbid you be like the norms, right? God forbid you be like everybody else. That attempt to elevate yourself out of out of the collective with a view that is sort of somehow different and flies in the face of what the normal people think. That's really the hallmark of highly educated people today in America. And you see it with gender as well, right? You know, the view that there is a difference between men and women is now considered transphobic, right? You must now be embarrassed to admit that you think that there's a difference between men and women. And essentially what that does is it chases all working class people who don't have that education that teaches them that the commonsensical view is wrong or evil or bigoted, chases them out of the public sphere by branding them as bigoted. And I think that that's really the hallmark of wokeness. and. Again, it's just, this is all about class, right? It's all about, you know, saying what is the view that most Americans who don't have this fancy, expensive degree, what do they think? And then turning that into something that's unsayable or unthinkable.
2: Is that what you mean when you say that anti-racism is a great displacement exercise?
3: Yeah, I mean, I look around at the people in my class and I think you should have immense amounts of economic guilt. I have immense amounts of economic guilt for the idea that I can sit in my apartment in my pajamas and do my job. And there are people out there braving the pandemic, people working day and night, physical labor who make less than me, right? I, I find that 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 bothers me a lot, that, this, that our economy is working so well for people in the knowledge industry and so poorly for the working class who build everything and make everything and make this country run. We should have a lot of economic guilt about the inequality in this country. It's appalling how we treat our working class. And yet, you really rarely find liberals talking about that. Instead, what they have is white guilt. They have racial guilt which of course is something you can do nothing about because you can't change your race, right? It's that's just a race. like instead of making race the least important thing, they've made it the most important thing. And I think that that's really a displacement because if we looked in the mirror too hard, we would realize that we have been the beneficiaries of economic inequality in a way that, you know, we've really not done enough to talk about it.
2: So how has this business model for journalism built on a culture war? turned into what you call a moral panic.
3: Yeah, so, you know, to have a culture where you have to have somebody on the other side, right? You know, you have to have somebody fighting back, right? (laughs) We don't have that about racism anymore. We have a total consensus that racism is totally evil and we have to eradicate it to the extent that we can, you know? We have a total consensus that God wants us that that's God's work, right? To make sure that every person is equal before the law in the way that we have all been born, you know, perfectly equal before God. So there used to be a culture war about that. There's no longer a culture war about that. There's no longer a culture war about police brutality. There's no longer a culture war about mass incarceration. You know, these are things that we all agree on now. So what they did was they they moved the goalpost because they had to keep fighting, right? But there was no one on the other side. And so now that there was a consensus about what counts as racism and how evil racism is they changed the definition of what counts as racism so that they could point to it everywhere right because they had to have this thing that they were fighting against and the thing that they now point to as being everywhere i mean it's a moral panic because it's not real it's things like people saying they want to have a colorblind society or somebody saying i don't see color and then somebody saying that's totally racist to say that right as opposed to being like wow it's so amazing that finally we're all on the same side of this issue
2: How is journalism's anti-racist narrative playing among black Americans?
3: You know, so there is an elite that, you know, is pushing it. And those are the people who will get hired by MSNBC and CNN and The New York Times. But most Black Americans are just, this is so fundamentally at odds with how they see things. First of all, the Black community is a very religious community. And of course, like wokeness, the idea that we should be measuring things in terms of power as opposed to in terms of right versus wrong is just anathema to how religious people see the world. You know, we believe that everyone is created equal and perfect in God's eyes. And it's just that is so alien to the woke worldview. So I think from that point of view, there's real tension there. There's I think a lot of black Americans support the idea of Black Lives Matter. They support the idea that we should be advocating for an end to police brutality. But then Black Lives Matter has come out against the nuclear family. And again, you know, to, to a community that is deeply religious, that's that's just not going to fly, you know. And so you have black pastors talking about that tension there and, and working through that tension. I think in general, you know, the, the, the working class of the black community, which is a big portion of the black community, is very much like the working class of the white community, which means that they believe in autonomy and they believe in, you know, they want their children to have good schools, but a lot of them want, want to choose those schools. So I think that the class divisions in America are so much more important than the racial divisions. And when you talk to people who are working class, who are white, who are black or Latino, they share a lot more in common, just like the elites of both sides share in common, despite the fact that they're often talking up this division.
2: Bhatia Ungar Sargon is our guest. We're talking about woke journalism. She's deputy opinion editor for Newsweek and author of the new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Up next, how do the progressive elite perpetuate inequality Can we reform journalism? And how does she explain the public's disengagement from public life? And how can that public life be restored? We'll be talking about all of that right after the break.
0: education, and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc.
2: You can help save lives in Southern Illinois by participating in 40 Days for Life, September 28 through November 6. Vigils will be held outside abortion facilities at Granite City, Carbondale, and Fairview Heights, Illinois. For information on Granite City, visit 40daysgc.com. To learn more about Carbondale and Fairview Heights, go to coalitionforlife.com. You can protect mothers and children by joining the worldwide effort of 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. What makes Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois so special? Our
1: new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m. Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call (laughs) 618-539-5664.
2: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Welcome. We're talking about woke journalism. Batya Ungar-Sargon is our guest, author of the new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. She's deputy opinion editor for Newsweek. Batya, how do the progressive elite perpetuate inequality?
3: I think by distracting from it with a moral panic about race, by not talking about it, by being against autonomy, by wanting to impose on the working class an expanded welfare state, as opposed to thinking about how to improve their jobs and make sure that those jobs give them more dignity by pushing things like, I mean, I very much support unions, but there's a lot of progressive rhetoric in in unions that's just not going to fly with working class conservatives. So instead of saying, look, we're going to meet you where you're at, because what matters to us is that you have good jobs with dignity. They say you have to accept this progressive rhetoric or forget it. We're not going to advocate on your behalf. That that kind of thing really bothers me.
2: How do you explain the public's general disengagement from uh, public life and how can that public life be restored?
3: You know, there's this great thinker, Christopher Lash, who was a historian who died uh, in the 90s, and he argued that, you know, people often say that Americans are disengaged because they're ill-informed or uninformed, and he said that's why they don't engage in debate, and he said, no, it's the opposite. A debate is what makes you want to be informed he said nobody ever went to search for information as much as a person who's losing a debate right and who knows that there's this this data point has to be out there that's going to to help them win and i think that americans The vast majority of Americans have been just simply deplatformed. we're not part of the conversation. The top 10% is fighting on one side, on the liberal side, is fighting with the top 5% on the conservative side. And everybody else has been cut out of the conversation. And people who are cut out of a conversation are not engaged in that conversation because it's not about them and has nothing to do with them.
2: Can American journalism be reformed? And if so, how?
3: I don't know. A lot of the economic incentives are on the bad side right now. But I think if enough Americans boycott, which is what's happening right now, uh, we might see the ships turn around a little bit.
2: Bhatia Ungar-Sargon is deputy opinion editor for Newsweek. She's author of the new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk on Demand Archives. Bhatia, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure.
2: When we come back, we're going to talk about physics and multiverse theories with Dr. Paul Edmund. He helps run the Canon supercomputer at Harvard University.
0: Others talk. We have something to say. You're listening to Issues Etc.